0: The way we're going to change the world, I think, is we were in proximity more. We were more in proximity and understanding each other, our stories, our backgrounds. That's the way we're going to change what's going on right now.
1: Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment.
2: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. I am Ben Tapper, and I'm an associate for resource consulting out of our central region. With me today is my co-host, Matt Burke. Good to see you, Matt. Hey, good to see you, Ben. And Matt is our education director and the director of our Northeast office in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And we have a fun topic today. We're talking about multicultural, multi-ethnic congregations. Matt, how has this topic come up, if at all, in your work, either as the education director or as our Northeast director?
1: Yeah, honestly, Ben, it hasn't come up a ton. I mean, I've had a few congregations reach out interested in becoming more multicultural, multi-ethnic, and just kind of stuck and not sure how to do that. And we've found a few resources around it, but it's not a topic that we hear a lot about. That's fair. I've had a similar
2: experience here in Central. I have had at least one, maybe a couple pastors talk to me about it, but it doesn't come up too terribly often. I had a a black pastor actually a few months ago approach me about it, wanting to make his congregation and his worship services appealing to more than just his African-American congregants. And so I thought that was really interesting and not a request or a question I get every day. But by and large, multicultural congregations feel like more of a cultural buzzword and topic than they are, at least in the work that I do day in and day out here at the center.
1: Yeah, and in fairness, it seems like something that people give a little bit of thought to or at least some lip service that like, yeah, it'd be nice and we'd love to see our congregation be more diverse. But I think there just are real barriers to understanding what that looks like and what it means and some of the questions and issues that crop up as a result, because I think it's a very, very complicated topic. Absolutely, absolutely.
2: And as Pastor Mondragon said, it's not— for everyone. Not everyone, not every congregation has to be multicultural. And so that's important to keep in mind too. But to your point, it is complex. And part of the reason I think it's complex is that there are historical considerations to bear in mind. You know, the one off the top of my head, it's the African American church and African American congregations have historically been a, a sanctuary, <laughs> no pun intended, for folks in the black community to feel safe and welcome and to just be able to exist more freely than they do when they've got to move through spaces that are predominantly white. you know. And so when you talk about integrating a congregation like that, for instance, or making it multicultural, there can be a real sense of loss that goes with that. And that loss has to be addressed and named and held carefully if you're going to then transition into being more multicultural. So that's just one example from one community. But there are others
1: that can make this topic a bit more difficult. Yeah. First of all, you dropped Pastor Mondragon, like everyone should know who that is. <laughs> That's our guest for this episode. That I did. So it's it's not some notable international figure that everyone should immediately know, just based on the name drop. <laughs> so Pastor Javier Mondragon is our guest for today's episode. But also, Ben, yeah, I think you're exactly right that I think people are interested in seeing a more diversity of faces in their congregation, but haven't thought through what that means and the fact that it requires change. It requires considered effort to happen. And I think the off the cuff sentiment is that, well, you know, they're welcome here and, you know, we want everyone to be welcome here, but they may not feel welcome because the culture of your congregation may be very much in one specific way. And whether that be a white congregation, a Spanish-speaking congregation, a black congregation, all of them have their own specific and unique nature that comes out of the culture. And there are considerations that have to be made that some people stepping into that space may not feel immediately comfortable in that. And it's not that they can't grow to appreciate it and enjoy it, but it's something that you definitely need to think about, that if you are interested in seeing multi-ethnicity in your congregation, it will require change and it will require some effort on your part. And I think we'll hear some of that in the interview.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, there are even certain spaces, some of the spaces that I run in, in which talking about multicultural congregations, people might give you kind of a side eye because there are plenty of times where it's been done without considerations for what culture is actually dominant, right? To your point, you can have a, uh, you'll like this, man, You can have a congregation that is phenotypically diverse, however, culturally...
1: Phenotypically diverse. (laughs) Yes. Okay, we we need to unpack that for a minute. (laughs) Uh,
2: So, you know, taking it back to biology, you've got the genotype and the phenotype. And the genotype is like the literal genetic expression that's in your DNA. And the phenotype is how those traits get manifested and visibly seen, right? So you might have skin color difference, hair texture difference, facial size, shape, et cetera. So yes, you might have a congregation that looks different to the eye, you know, because they are from different racial and ethnic demographics. But culturally, you might still... Be operating under a white culture, right? And so there's a lot of criticism levied against those congregations for whom that is the case. And it just—that's a long-winded way of saying you're right, Matt. We got to keep those cultural things in mind and be aware that change is part of this process.
1: Ben Tapper taking us to science class. <laughs>
2: yeah, who would love have, it?
1: My bio teacher would be so proud of me right now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I wasn't just sleeping.
1: Okay. <laughs> Yeah. And Ben, I'm interested in talking about something briefly that I don't think I have the right to talk about it oh, That sounds <laughs> because, <fun>. because <laughs> I'm a middle-aged white male. Okay. But I'd love for our audience to hear and understand code switching. It may be a term that folks aren't used to because what you're discussing is, yeah, you may have people who look very different, but the culture is a specific way. And I think code switching lends itself to that. And that was a very eye-opening thing for me to learn about. So can you tell our audience a little bit about code switching?
2: Sure, I think code switching can definitely be part of that. And in short, I always welcome folks to Google a thing to get a more complete definition. But in short, code switching is the act of alternating, in most cases, like the way that you speak to fit into a certain place or time. So if you, for instance, I might be hanging out with friends of mine that are black and I'm going to talk a certain way, use certain vernacular, use certain words and phrases, if you will, even certain slang that I may or may not use in the workplace when I'm talking with my white colleagues. And and that change between the way I speak with my friends and the way I speak in my uh, nonprofit workplace, that is an example of code switching, right? And so to get real literal for folks, you know, if I'm walking into a room and I got my friend Lee in the room, I might say, hey, man, what's good, Right. If I walk into the Center for Congregations, I might say, hey, how y'all doing today? How's everybody feeling? It's subtle, but that's an example of code switching. And there are other examples that aren't necessarily linguistically based, you know? So if you're thinking about elements of culture in a congregation, you might think about what types of music are you worshiping or singing to? You might think about the physical layout and decor, the iconography, the pictures on the wall, the art, what cultures, what time periods is it from? The ways that your governance structures are set up, you know, what denominations or cultures are those structures from. So there are levels to culture in an organization or a congregation, and thus there are levels to code switching. But put simply, it's the way of adapting to being in a different social group in a different group of people.
1: Yeah, thanks for that, Ben. And to give kind of a similar example in the theological space, Ben, have you ever noticed that some pulpits are in the middle of the platform and some pulpits are off to the side of a platform, depending on what church you attend? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, do you know the reasons for that? I don't. So the reason for that is that in Christian faith traditions, where the Eucharist or communion is the central thing, usually the altar where the communion resides or the Eucharist resides is in the center of the stage— And the speaker speaks from the side because the Eucharist and the act of sharing that is central to the worshiping community. Mm. But in other traditions, the pulpit is central because the sharing of the word tends to be the central component of the service. Mm. And so you may worship in a congregation, you might be listening to this, and you may have never thought of why the position of the place where the person speaks is where it is, but there's reason behind that. And so, just to kind of pull back the curtain on the sense that you are worshiping in a specific culture. Yes. And even if it's just different from other white culture, there are theological reasons, maybe you can think of their biblical reasons, but then there are other things that we do just based on the other aspects of our culture that are completely unconscious. And that's why I think it's important to understand code switching as we talk about multicultural and multi-ethnicity in congregations, because there are many things that you do that you may not even be aware of that are sending signals. And actually, Pastor Mondragon shares a story about that in the interview that I think will be helpful.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Great tie-in. Great tie-in. I'm glad you brought that up, Matt. So we know we've taken a little longer to lay the context for this particular conversation, but I think it's important because at face value, multicultural congregations seems like a fairly straightforward topic. But there are a lot of nuances that you've got to consider if you're going to do it well. And when it's not done well, it can be pretty harmful. But there are also examples of when it is done well, some successes that come out of that. And I think you'll hear some of that in Pastor Mondragon's examples and the stories that he tells. And so that's the point of this kind of extended framing that we're doing. We hope that it's helpful. But, you know, with that said, why don't we just let you hear from Pastor Mondragon himself? Here is our conversation. Whoa.
1: All right, everybody, welcome back, and I'm happy to have Pastor Javier Mondragon with us. He's the co-pastor of Many Nations Church of the Nazarene, and he's also the CEO and founder of Bridge of Grace Ministries here in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So welcome, Pastor Mondragon.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited.
1: Yeah, we're excited to have you here. So, we were interested in talking with you, Pastor, because many nations, in the way it was founded and just its history of kind of a multi ethnic, multicultural congregation, we think our listeners would benefit from hearing about just some aspects of what it means to lead a, a multilingual, multi ethnic congregation. And so, we're going to talk about some things around that. Good. Looking forward to it. Yeah. So, just right off the top, one of the first things is what do you view as some of the unique challenges? of leading a multilingual, multi-ethnic congregation.
0: Yeah, I think I was trying to come up with a list and, like, priority, and for us, it's language. Language barrier can be one of the biggest, probably. It's, you know, we have people who come and speak Spanish, especially in our congregations, it's more Hispanic, Latino, and so they speak Spanish and some of them don't speak English, so that's a barrier to, to begin, and then culture just being from different ethnicities different countries you know because even in latino and hispanic countries they're from different countries and the the culture is different in mexico than in honduras or el salvador so that's another challenge i think i would say those two are probably the biggest when you have a multi-ethnic and different cultures in the same congregation
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up, because I think for me, growing up in predominantly white congregations, we tend to think of other cultures as pretty monolithic, that we think of African-American congregations, or we think of Spanish-speaking congregations, and just have this assumption that they're very homogenous inside of that container. But yeah, the recognition that the languages are different, the cultures and the customs are very different— and so it would be like maybe in the early days of the United States, with a lot of white settlers coming in, then bringing in their Italian or their Irish ancestries and their traditions and their values and their language, and just how much of a challenge that might have been.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they have different customs. Like you said, it's a, it's a totally different background and the way to do things. And so it's the same with us. Yeah.
2: I wonder, is that true in the way that they're used to worshiping as well? You know, I imagine different countries and cultures might have different flavors to the way they practice any particular faith, but especially Christianity, you know, we already have denominational divides, let alone like cultural and language divides. So how do those cultural differences come up when it comes to practicing the faith or worshiping together?
0: Yes, that's a big one. That's a big one. You know, so there's those religious backgrounds, too. They come, uh, i give you an example, it's something that we've seen here in being a pastor. So I, I'm originally from Mexico and my wife is Hispanic, but she, she was born here in, in Texas and she grew up here. So she, the way she said it is, I'm white, but my heart is, you know, and I can look Hispanic outside, but she grew up with and all her friends were white. And and so the, the custom, the difference. In our congregation, for example, when it comes to, uh, you know, lately, more churches have gone back to more, what would you call it, ritual. The Ash Wednesday services, they are doing, they even in our denomination, I think we see more and more going to those Ash Wednesday services. Well, when it comes to the people that come from Latin America, the majority of these countries are Catholic. And just to be sure, the Catholic Church in Latin America, in Mexico, is very different than the Catholic Church in the U.S. For example, in Mexico, up until 1990, the 1995, 90% of the population in Mexico would call themselves Catholics. And then it changed. It was more Christianity, Pentecostals uh, started to be big and there was some revival and something happening and people started to go from Catholic to becoming Pentecostal or evangelicals. The difference is that the Catholic church in Mexico, for example, a lot of times it's more like a mix. It was the church coming to different villages in Mexico, and the villages had their own idols and Mm -hmm. their own styles of worship. And then basically what they did in the past, this is years and years ago, is they said, that's okay, you can keep those idols, you can keep worshiping those, but we're also going to have a church here. And you can bring them into the church. And so for years, there's been this mix, right, of the Catholic church that embraced kind of the idols and the things that uh, people were worshiping before they came in. And so when it comes to people who convert from Catholicism to evangelicalism, there is this stigma, right, that, you know, once you learn, if you say the truth, that... You shouldn't be worshiping idols. So even if you go to Mexico and you find, go to, you know, the cathedral, like those big churches, you see a lot of images like saints, it's something you don't see here very much in Catholic churches. And so, again, as I think for the Hispanic community that is coming out of the Catholicism into the evangelical, they almost feel like once you become evangelical, you can't no longer be catholic like Mm. and the customs that they practice in the past you shouldn't practice those because they were all wrong and so here in the u.s now you have the nazarene churches and so i have this hispanic population coming to our church and they see that some nazarene churches are practicing ash wednesday and they said what's going on i don't know if that makes sense but it's basically, you know, for them, is like you're come going back to being Catholic.
2: Mm-hmm. Now,
0: Catholicism in the U.S., again, is different Down historically what happened in Mexico and many other countries in Latin America.
1: Yeah, I think that's such a great thing to raise, because if there are congregations out there that you have people coming into your congregation that are from different backgrounds, you really need to do your homework of what did they come from? What were the traditions and practices? What were the meanings of those traditions and practices? Because you could inadvertently do something that in our culture and in our understanding of the Christian faith or of the religion that you're practicing, it means one thing, but to someone coming in from a different culture, it may mean something completely and utterly different, and it might cause problems when it didn't need to. You just needed to do a little bit of homework and have some conversation.
0: Exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, that's been something that I, at least, you know, I understand because I'm coming from my background and coming from Mexico and knowing what that meant for people to coming out of Catholicism there. But yeah, you're right. It, it's a challenge. So yeah, I had, you know, in our congregation, we had different pastors who, oh, people who have been going to, through seminary. And so they practice here, uh, you know, let them preach once in a while. But we've had conversations like that where, you know, they wanted to preach about this or preach about that. And we had to have those conversations. And I just give you a cultural visual and something for you to learn about what the difference and and sometimes they end up changing what they originally planned.
1: Yeah. And from your perspective, I think there are a lot of congregations, predominantly white congregations, that are interested in being more multicultural and multi-ethnic. What advice do you have? in those kinds of situations. So, you know, it's maybe like a 95% white congregation and suddenly a couple that's immigrated from Honduras, you know, attends the congregation. And I'm not saying specific to Honduras, but just in general, how should the congregational leadership, how should the congregation itself approach that situation and what words of advice would you have for them?
0: I think it's, well, it's embracing, you know, first of all, I think it's it's that relationship building, you know, when somebody walks into your congregation and, from a different background, different culture, uh, everything starts with relationship, right? It's a, uh, it's more than just you know maybe inviting to your table, you know coming to eat and just break bread together. I think that's a very important piece of come uh, multi congregational, multi congregations uh, that relationship piece. I would say, you know, a lot of times if you were to say, well, there's one family visiting now, I want to change everything we do in the service because it's from one family, I think it would be too drastical, right? I don't think that every church needs to be multi-racial, multi-ethnic. I think we have to have that every church should be able to welcome, you know, and maybe analyze and how we do our Sunday's worship service. To make sure that we are at least welcoming anybody who comes and feels everybody who comes from a different background or different uh, ethnicity is feeling welcome where we are. But if it's just because one family comes in and now you want to change everything you do in the survey, I think that'd be difficult to do. I wouldn't recommend that. But but yes, understanding I think that family and making them feel welcome speaking their language, which the language is love. Now, a lot of times it doesn't have to be another language when it comes to, you know, Spanish or any other language. It's the love, right? Is that relationship. I always tell our congregation here that even if we don't understand each other, when it comes to people who speak Spanish, don't speak English, there's one language that we all speak and it's that obviously you can know that somebody cares just by how they treat you.
2: I think that's incredibly powerful and actually... You inadvertently gave a plug for another podcast. So for those that haven't been listening, the Shades of Hope podcast, which is a podcast by two pastors here in Indianapolis about racial justice, they made the same point you're making, Pastor. They said that the goal shouldn't be to have a multiracial congregation. We don't need every congregation to be multiracial and multiethnic. That's not the goal for everyone. But sometimes it happens to develop naturally in congregations, and that's fine. So if you want to hear more about that conversation with them, check out Shades of Hope, Season 1, Episode 8.
1: Shameless plug, Ben. Shameless Shameless. plug. I have no shame. Right in the middle of the interview. Come on,
2: man. No shame. None. (laughs) (laughs) But this also leads me to a question that I'm wondering about. You know, in our time of really heightened political tension here in the US, particularly, the major cities in Indiana tend to skew a little bit more liberal at times than the rest of the state does. And so there's like the state city contrast, there's the liberal conservative contrast that can play out in our congregations, not to mention the political differences that can come up just from being from different places, right? Having a multicultural congregation. So given the potential for conflict and tension, how have y'all managed that in this season? What has that looked like for your congregation?
0: That's a great question. Uh, That's one of the things, right? If you're going to go into multi-ethnic, multicultural ministries, that's the one thing you're going to find always. You know that there's that political tension that you mentioned. The racial reconciliation is one of the pieces you talk about all the time. It's like when I first started the church this way, like uh, once a month, I think within my sermons and messages, I will be always mentioning something about why it's important that we worship together and that we are here and the racial peace is so important but then yeah with that comes political right? we shouldn't be political but it's political because mm-hmm. of the division i tell you in our congregation the different tensions there so immigration it's a political mm-hmm. thing yeah. right it yeah. shouldn't be political again you know we should take it from the perspective of the biblical, what god says about it but i can tell you you know just give you an example i with the last administration and all of the things that were said by the person who was leading the administration, it was really rough, right? Really hard because you have a congregation here. Where they have people from different countries, different, you know, Latin America and you hear on the news and you hear the administration talking about certain groups of people in one way. And so then you come on Sunday, you have to worship with the congregation with people who voted for, Mm-hmm. That person, right? And and then, so there's that tension, right? I remember when he was, well, yeah, I, would, I would say that when President Trump was elected, I had some families who came, who were from El Salvador and other countries in Latin America who, you can see their faces. It was just very scary the Sunday after of the elections. And it was just very, very hard for them to come in, you know, because they, in their mind, they don't know, of course, who voted for him, who didn't vote for him. Right. But it was really, you know, a struggle to think, yeah, like, you know, who who could have, who can do that? Who can vote for somebody like that who, in their minds, is like being rejected at being, I'm not accepted here. And so, yeah, there's that piece. Immigration, we had some families that have gone through the immigration process. There was one that was deported and he was in the process of getting his status, but there was a mistake. It was basically a traffic problem that he had in he the police got him and he was deported within a month. Mm-hmm. And there was a couple who had a lot of questions. They said, why, what happened? Can you tell me what happened? And man, I tell you, you know, this example is a long story, but basically this couple became advocates of immigration and they were sending letters to the house representatives and the senators and. They're saying you're taking a person who is basically he has three kids, and he was the person who was providing for the household and like you know they didn't understand anything about immigration, and then all of a sudden you know because they is this brother for them right they they yeah. love that they saw coming to Christ here and being baptized that now they have a different perspective of immigration and this mm. topic so Yeah, this political thing, I believe they changed their mind on how they think about immigration and politics Yeah, because, you know, they have this relationship piece.
2: That's a beautiful example of the transformation that can come with relationship. And I think that is lovely. And for those that haven't experienced what it's like having someone you know get deported, it can be a really abrupt and traumatic experience. Like someone's there one day and the next they're just gone, right? And there's just a void, no explanation. You don't know what's happening. The family's left scrambling, trying to figure out what to do now. They had a job and we're providing support for the family. Now they got to find that money somewhere else. So it can be really jarring for a community. And if you haven't experienced it, I don't think we can be aware of the impact even just one person getting taken from our community can have.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's one of the stories that i never forget. I will never forget because, like I said, this couple just, they had a bunch of questions. And then I gave them a book called Welcoming the Stranger with Matthew mm-hmm. Sorens. well, one of the best when it comes to immigration. And they read it and, you know, they were, they were crying. They would come and cry in my office. And what can we do? Is there anything mm-hmm. we can do? And it, was, it just took a month for the person to be deported. So it was not even time to do anything. But yeah, I'll never forget that because the way it changed them.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, I've heard some pastors, when they're dealing with this sort of tension in their community, they take the stance of just forget all political conversations and focus on love, right, in Jesus. I've heard others say, hey, this is about justice, so you either get in line or you get left behind. And there's a bunch of responses in between, what have you found has worked particularly well for your church when it comes to facing the tension that comes up in community? Mm-hmm.
0: No, you're right. You know, there has to be conversations. You know, when it comes to conflict like that, you can't solve conflict if you don't address it. You have to have difficult conversations. I went through the process of immigration as well. My wife had to apply for me, you know, and it took about three and a half years. And I'm not afraid to talk about that. I tell people how it works because a lot of people don't even understand how it works. I preached in the past, you know, often on immigration and I don't think that gets out there. Not many people, pastors will preach about immigration, but very intentional about it. Mm -hmm. I think for us, and like I said, in those conversations where you're sitting at a table, when you can come together and talk Mm -hmm. as a family and just, you know, if somebody's curious about how do you feel about right now, the racial tension and they talk, uh, we've been encouraging people to talk about it. It's better to understand how we feel and, so my approach has been encouraging our congregation to talk about it, to approach conflict by addressing conflict, and not by avoiding conflict.
2: Imagine that addressing conflict and not avoiding—who—who who would have thought that could work? I don't know. Right.
0: Well, the, I think Jesus was like that. He—he he was very, <laughs> you know, you think of Jesus as a very peaceful man walking with his robe and very, very loving people. No, he was—he wasn't like that. You read stories, and you read really well, and you'll see that he was, you know, you didn't avoid conflict.
2: Very true.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think the conversation here lends itself to another question that we had for you about the strengths of a multi-ethnic, multilingual congregation, and I'm hearing that one is just the relationships that are built and the understanding of an experience and of a life that you didn't live and how that's a good thing, and how that benefits the community. What are other things about your congregation that you've seen that are real strengths of having so many different kinds of people as a part of the congregation?
0: Um, I can list a lot of things here, too. So one, again, is like that worldview perspective for this couple that I talked about, how it changed, and I have seen more and more people like that. They just of changes the way they see things because once they are in proximity and they understand people who they are and where they come from that relationship changes their worldview so that's a benefit I think of having a multi-ethnic church or going to a multi-ethnic church intentionally I would say I am blessed I always say it's, it's a blessing to have my kids I have four kids and my kids are growing growing up with friends who look very different than them. And they all are different, different color, different culture. And for me, it's such a blessing because, you know, hopefully these relationships they have with these friends will last. And so I see that as a blessing as one of the biggest benefits because they are growing up knowing and they don't see any difference. For them, it's normal to have friends who speak different languages so they have different cultures and different socioeconomic too they come from different class. And, and so that's important, too. That's another one, right? The way we're going to change the world, I think, is we were in proximity more. We were more in proximity and understanding each other, our stories, our backgrounds. That's the way we're going to change what's going on right now. And then the other benefit, I think, is just that our world is changing. The U.S. is changing. I can tell you the numbers, but you can look it up. I think the 2020 census numbers are coming up. And there was very drastic numbers when it comes to the color people, uh, the numbers, how are growing. And this was the first time I think that there were some states that white are decreasing. And so this world is going in that direction is going to be more and more diverse, more and more diverse, multi-ethnic and so I think the benefit of having multi-ethnic or attending a multi-ethnic church is that you are preparing for the future. Is now, and is coming, and it's not going to stop. And so that's a benefit, I think.
1: Yeah, thanks for highlighting that. I think the stat that sticks in my mind the most is, I think as of 2013, births in the United States, non-white births are higher than Caucasian births as of 2013. And so, yeah, that trend is going to be continuing. And it's an important thing to remember that even if you're in a pretty homogeneous congregation now, uh, that's not going to be the case. You know, in 10, 15, 20 years, if you're still here, then your congregation is probably going to look very different than it does today. And hey, we may as well get started, right? <laughs> we may as well get started figuring out those questions and concerns and building relationships now because it's going to happen at some point.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So you've addressed some of the Opportunities and benefits of a multicultural congregation. We've talked about some of the challenges. From a, a leadership point of view, what do pastors or other leaders need to keep in mind if they are engaging on this journey of creating or cultivating a multicultural, multiethnic, multiracial congregation?
0: Hey, so, again, I, I don't believe that every church has to be multiethnic. And I feel like it's a call that God will kind of call you into this and if you're sure that that's the call god has for you i think uh, the core group and core leadership of your congregation needs to know that Mm -hmm. (laughs) they need to be very intentional to know that that's what you're called to do and that's what that church or congregation is called to be I think is important because, you know, at the beginning here, it was just going to be Hispanic. It was just going to be in the Spanish congregation. And then it was just very clear to us that God called us to do a bilingual, do English and Spanish, just because our neighborhood is very diverse. And so we were doing only Spanish for Hispanic congregants. So there are a lot of people in our neighborhood wouldn't be able to come and they wouldn't feel welcome. They wouldn't understand anything. So for us, it was a very clear vision that god told us yes we're going to do it bilingual it's going to be multi-ethnic from the beginning and that's going to be what god is calling us to do Mm -hmm. and so we told our 15 20 people that we had at that time and this is what we told them and we lost one couple hispanic couple that were from here uh, born in chicago and came here because even though they were from here they still wanted just spanish and we lost that couple, but it was okay, right? Because we were honest at the beginning. Instead of studying something and saying one thing, we were very clear on what we wanted to do. So I think that for pastors is so important to first determine that who you want to be and what the congregation would look like and make sure that the core leadership know. And then from there, a allowed to learn And a lot of the learning happens with books you can learn, you know, people who have gone and done multi-ethnic churches before, talking to those pastors before they are doing it. But a lot of the experience comes when you start is when you are doing it. You'll find the experience that you need, I think.
1: Yeah, I love that idea of being clear on your vision and your mission. And some people may say, that's not for me. And I've heard that called addition through subtraction, (laughs) 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 that you make certain decisions and some folks might leave, but ultimately you're being true to your congregation's identity, right? And who God is calling your congregation to be, which ultimately that's what's important, right? That not necessarily trying to cater to every single person who's there. It goes back to your earlier point of, you know, if one couple comes in from a different country... Don't just drop everything and then change the entire service to match what they want. Of course, you want to be sensitive, and of course, you want to build a relationship. But catering to uh, individuals against what you think the congregation should be, what its identity should be in general, is really an important concept. So thanks for sharing that.
0: Yeah, one more story. So, And then after we started now bilingual services, and now we were going and doing bilingual, everybody understood. We have this couple now, the English-speaking couple that walk into our church and then started to attend, you know, so it came from maybe four weeks, Mm -hmm. uh, went out and had lunch with them. And we were talking and we're sitting and it was a great conversation. But then in the middle of the conversation, they said, okay, so, you know, we love the church. We've been coming now for weeks and it's great. And we love it. Now, just tell me, I just want to know if this is true because I'm pretty sure you're doing the bilingual service spanish and english right now but the idea would be to just go into english right because the people are going to learn english right i mean i'm pretty sure in a few months once everybody know english you're going to keep it in english right (laughs) and uh never forget that either and i forget that was a great i didn't laugh but i I wanted to laugh almost (laughs) i said no i said no no actually we We see that it's very important to do it this way because there's so many other different things. So in the benefits, I forgot to mention, you know, having people from first generation that come to our church from the Hispanic community to people from third, fourth generation, right? That the third and fourth generation a lot of times prefer English. That's their language now. They grew up, but the first generation is still Spanish. And so that benefit of coming to a church where you can have both. And you don't have to go to two different congregations to get both. So anyway, so but that's a story I never forget, too.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure there's something to be said for just the comfort of especially religious services in your native language. I remember a professor at Mount Vernon Nazarene, actually, was from India, Dr. Varughese, and he said that the hardest thing for him to learn to do in English was to pray. And for years, even after he was fluent in English, He had the hardest time praying in English because of just the comfort of the native language and having learned just the cadence and the flow of prayer in the native language. And so I can't imagine how trying to force people into a mode of worship that's a second language and how that might be a bit jarring and just how comforting that is for people to be able to come and to experience worship in their primary language. I'm sure that's a great blessing.
0: Mm -hmm. So when it comes to prayer, we don't translate prayers, that's what we say, God understands Spanish and English, so we pray pray (laughs) in Spanish and God will understand, you don't have to translate the prayers.
1: That's awesome. Very cool. So I'm curious about how do you then navigate the different aspects of culture and how do you create cultural hospitality so that kind of everyone can see a little bit of themselves or their home cultures in the mix? Do you have processes in place or does it just kind of happen naturally?
0: Yeah, we try to be intentional for every service as we plan to just kind of make sure we have, you know, no one culture is dominant than the other. So we try to be as as much as we can. Usually what happens is the person who plans is usually, you know, a lot of times without knowing or no intentionally, they will kind of dominate, right? The style of even the songs that, that we sing, music, you know, uh, that's another challenge. It could be a challenge, but it's a great opportunity too, because there's different styles of music that people like and prefer. So I imagine in homogeneous congregations, a lot of times it's more of the old hymns. So new style, new, new Christian music right now. Oz is more like, you know, gospel music or Latino music is different, totally different and the rhythms are different. But I think trying to see what your Sunday look like and your service looks like and think about, is this really going to speak to the congregation, the person that is from a different culture and different ethnicity and how is this making that person feel? And so reading the scriptures in different languages are great. What we do is we usually have both languages. So we have the screen and, Spanish on one side, English on the other side, or back, you know, top English or you know, Spanish and then bottom Spanish. So we have both so that people can choose. And then the worship team usually goes back and forth. So they can go one verse in Spanish, one verse in English, and then they sing together. So, you know, those aspects use the thing, the way you plan your service be very important for hospitality. But then it's not just what happens during the service, I guess. It's what happens after and what happens before and how you love each other and how even Mm -hmm. if you don't, you know, that the other person doesn't speak English or doesn't speak Spanish, you can still love them, give them a hug, and not during COVID, but (laughs) before you can do it. Sure. (laughs) But, yeah, you know, it's that smile that tells you, you know, uh, you're loved, you're welcome here, and that's enough a lot of times.
1: Yeah, that's really powerful. That's great. Thank you for that. So as we come to close to closing our time here, we talked a lot about many nations, but I know that Bridge of Grace also takes a lot of your time and your energy. And I think we'd be remiss if we didn't give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about Bridge of Grace and its work in the Fort Wayne community.
0: Thank you. Yeah. So Bridge of Grace was established about 10 years ago, almost 10 years. It's a compassion ministry center. So it's basically the hands and feet of the church. This is how we love our neighborhood. This is how we love our community, and we want to be part of the, bringing the solutions and the problems to you know make this community a better place because we feel like our church should be the best neighbor of this community. And so, the Bridge of Grace Ministries have been basically embracing the neighborhood by reaching out to them and ask them, you know, what are the needs and what are the good things that are happening in the neighborhood, and how can we make them better. I live here, so I moved here about thirteen years ago when we started the church live right next door. And it's a challenging neighborhood in the past where we had a lot of crime. It's a low-income area, and so there was a lot of crime, a lot of drug houses, shootings, and homicides. And so when we saw that, we saw that those are challenges, but at the same time, we're opportunities for the church to be a good witness to that. And so what we're doing with Rich of Grace, like I said, is just trying to to engage with the neighborhood and then con- making this neighborhood a better place. So we became more like a community development organization. So now we buy houses that are blighted and we renovate them and try to make it affordable for people to own. So homeownership. We bought a lot of vacant lots where there used to be houses. They demolished the houses, the city demolished the houses. We got those vacant lots from them to take care of them, maintain them. And now even build homes on those as well. So we partnered with Habitat for Humanity who comes and they build new homes. And again, we are getting more people to own and creating more stability in the neighborhood. And then some of those vacant lots were also converted into parks or third spaces for people to gather and build community. Because that's what people have been asking. That's what people say. We want more safe places for children to play and we want places where we can gather and have activities together. And then we have a lot of after-school programs as well that serve mentoring programs, reading programs, and things like that. So,
1: Sounds like you need more to do. I, th- I think we need to <laughs> add some tasks to your list. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. no,
0: amazing. But we brought a new pastor for many nations church too. And knowing that we have a lot going on, you know, we decided that it was time for us to bring somebody to come and co-pastor with me to kind of take more of the central role of the church. And I'm taking more into the Bridge of Grace
1: role. That's awesome. Well, where can folks find out more about Bridge of Grace, Many Nations, Pastor Mondragon, just any social media websites, anything like that?
0: Yeah, the website for Many Nations is manynationschurch.org. And that's, everybody can go there and just find all the information about it. And then Bridge of Grace is bridgeofgracecmc.org. So it stands for Compassion Ministry Centers, bridgeofgracecmc.org. Both have a Facebook page. They can find us on Facebook as well, Bridge of Grace CMC or Many Nations Church in Fort Wayne.
1: Awesome. Well, I encourage folks to check it out. Lots of good things have been happening in that neighborhood for many, many years because of Many Nations and Pastor Mondragon, thank you so much for your leadership, for your ministry, for your congregation. Please thank your congregation on our behalf that we're just big fans of what you do there. And we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. So thanks for being here.
0: I appreciate you. Thank you for the invitation.
1: Absolutely. Take care. All right, so that was our conversation with Pastor Javier Mondragon. And Ben, what are some things that you took away from that conversation?
2: I really appreciated the ways in which Pastor was able to articulate, honestly, the tension that his congregation has experienced over the last few years. You know, you and I talked about this, but the way he was able to just speak honestly about the experience, the stress, the anxiety that some families in his community felt during the Trump era and how that played out. And then the story he shared of that man being deported and how that inspired the white couple to kind of become immigration advocates themselves when otherwise they might not have. And so I think it was really beautiful to both hear the authentic stories of the tension and the challenges and holding that political tension and division and their cultural tension and division in his congregation, while also speaking to the inspiration and the transformation that happened in folks as a result of an injustice that they witnessed. And so I was just really glad that he was able to bring those stories up during our conversation.
1: Yeah, it's just very real and very human, the things that they've encountered. And I've been such a big fan of that congregation. I've known about them for, man, about as long as I've been at the center. And it was started as a church plant from a very large Nazarene church in the suburban north part of Fort Wayne. And it's down kind of in the south side. And just the impact that they have had on that community. And I'm not sure if it's still true or not, but I knew at one point it was about one third white, one-third Spanish-speaking, and one-third black in the congregation. Hmm. And just the fact that they've been able to hold that tension together for as long as they have, and the richness that seems like comes out of that community is really a beautiful thing to see.
2: Absolutely. And you uh, um, don't—let me not generalize. I don't see too many congregations with that kind of racial and demographic breakdown. And so that's really exciting to hear. And I do wonder about, you know, day in and day out, what the conversations are like, you know, how different the issues they're addressing compared to congregations that are more monolithic or monoracial.
1: I was just wondering what else stood out to you. It makes me wonder about leadership. The fact that he has been the senior pastor since the beginning, and he is an immigrant from Mexico who's now an American citizen, who's bilingual himself and had a vision and a passion for a multi-ethnic congregation— And I just wonder, and it's impossible to test, I'm sure, but I just wonder how the fact that it was a leader who really was someone not from this city, not even from this country, but it was his vision that kind of drew together the others and casting a vision for a multi-ethnic congregation and being able to bring them together. And I just wonder how important that is. And I've heard other people talk about that, that if you really want a multi-ethnic congregation, you really have to have a multi-ethnic leadership. And so as congregations think long-term about that, if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in your congregation becoming multi-ethnic, you know, take a look at your leadership. And it's not like you need to fire everyone and start over immediately. But, you know, as you take steps forward in your hiring practices and thinking about the future, be thinking about the kinds of people that you want in your congregation and make sure they're represented in your leadership in some way, shape, or form.
2: And I think part of the reason that can be really helpful and necessary is that, When you're a member of a racial or ethnic group that isn't part of the dominant white culture, you can bring those experiences into leadership with you. And so when you have the chances to shape and to affect and guide the change of culture that happens when you become a multicultural congregation, you are more likely to guide that change and to see it through with those experiences in mind. And thus, you're more likely to make it so that others in the congregation who are living through those same types of experiences, can feel more comfortable in your congregation, right? You're curating change designed to speak to those that exist maybe on the margins of certain segments of society rather than creating a culture that is solely existing to serve those at the more centralized in society. And and so I think just that difference in perspective is one reason why it's important to have leadership in place that represents the diversity you want your congregation to occupy or that you want your congregation to have.
1: Yeah, and it's thinking about, too, what in your congregation is speaking to people who are visiting, because I think we don't often think about that. And I know that there are congregations out there that have a different view of women in roles of leadership than I do. I'm very pro women in ministry positions. And there was a congregation that my wife and I visited that when they did, it was either the offering or communion, I can't remember which, but every single person who came down the aisle carrying. I think it was the offering. Carrying an offering plate was an elderly white male. It was males probably, if I had to guess, between maybe 55 and 65 years old. And it was a pretty large congregation. And that congregation may not realize that that speaks. And they may not even have a stance about women in roles of leadership or against multi-ethnicity in any way, shape, or form. But that moment spoke and said, ah, maybe this isn't a place where we want to invest because we want to see people in roles who are different from us and who are female. Mm -hmm. And so maybe take a look at your congregational practices and who you have in certain positions. And again, it's not taking away from allowing people to serve. That's not my point. I think someone might hear what I'm saying. And think that you have to remove people who've done faithful service as an usher for, you know, 50 years and like, well, Bill, you can't usher anymore because of your skin color. That's not my point. But maybe create a rotation where Bill still continues to get to serve as consistently as he has, but give other people an opportunity and even giving young people an opportunity to do it. That, you know, the age of people who serve in the worship service in different ways or as greeters or as ushers, maybe thinking about that as well. And so just get a fresh eye as to what happens in your worship services or in your small groups and take a look at what someone else from the outside might see and feel from that. And if you're interested in more people being involved, younger people being involved, other demographics being involved, ask them to volunteer so that when other people visit, they see themselves in some way, shape, or form serving in the congregation in some way— And that will speak to them and say, you know what, this is maybe a place where I can serve too. Yeah,
2: and to your point, the congregations may not have an explicit stance on something like women in leadership or becoming more diverse, but I would make the claim that you always have a stance. Maybe it's not explicit, maybe it's more implicit, maybe it's unintentional. But I think the culture that we swim in bears itself out unless we intentionally try to do something different. And so you may not mean to communicate a thing, but it's still being communicated regardless. And so what I hear you doing is inviting us to consider and observe what it is that we're communicating Mm -hmm. and then to reflect on if that is actually a true reflection of the values we want to hold as a congregation, as a community, et cetera.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And that's a great point, Ben. Thanks for that clarification.
2: You mentioned wanting to bring up knowing your community or knowing the demographics of your community, something like that. Am I remembering that correctly?
1: Yeah, I think this came up in our conversation about rural congregations, where we were talking to Alan Stanton, and Alan was talking about rural congregations sometimes want younger demographics, but if you look at the census data, there just aren't any younger demographics in the area. And I think the same is true of multiculturalism and multi-ethnicities, that before you worry too much about your congregation and where it's at, you may want to take a look at the demographics. You may be interested in having Spanish-speaking people as a part of your congregation, but you may find, if you look into the census data, and I'll share a resource later on that'll help you do that, but you may look into the census data and there just may not be anybody around you. And the same thing is true for younger people, maybe African-Americans in your area. I know that we've looked at the demographics of Southeast Indiana And as we try to engage more with congregations of color, Southeast Indiana, the way we have it divided up is probably close to like 95% white, I think. And so it's having appropriate expectations about what you can do based on who's literally in your vicinity, right? So it's just an important consideration to have that you may be very interested in this idea, but you need to understand who's around you. And so that will also gauge or guide how you might see yourself as being a congregation that includes people different from you. Who are those people that are different?
2: Yes, and how do you access the voices that are going to bring fresh perspectives if you can't just invite folks into your congregation or do a joint service with another congregation, right? It means there's got to be a different type of intentionality about how you introduce those diverse perspectives into your worship space. And so that's that's a phenomenal point, and I think it impacts congregations that are thinking and talking about anti-racism or racial justice as well. You know, how do you do that work? How do you think about doing that work appropriately if you happen to live in a community in which, you know, it's just not that racially diverse? What do you do about it? You can maybe investigate why your community isn't as racially diverse and if there are some systemic issues behind that. But, you know, when it's not as simple as just calling up a pastor of another race or ethnicity and having a conversation with them, you've got to think strategically about what that change and transformation can look like. So, yeah, I'm glad you made that point. Also, thanks for plugging that episode. For those that are curious about the conversation we had with Alan Stanton on rural ministry, check out season two, episode nine, of this podcast.
1: But we know, of course, you want to check out every episode of exactly. the Center for Congregations podcast. So if you're listening to this, and, and chances are, you've probably have heard all of them and you listened faithfully every two weeks. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> we know y'all do that.
2: So what You know, as you continue to reflect on this conversation and on the importance or the challenges and opportunities of having a multicultural ministry, are there additional resources that you found to be really pertinent to this topic?
1: Yeah, the first resource I want to bring up is the one that I just mentioned around demographics. And there's something called the Association of Religion Data Archives, or the ARDA, T H E A R D A dot com. So if you go on that website and you click on Community Profile Builder, You can enter a zip code or an address, and it'll take you to a tool that's very simple and very easy to use that helps you access demographic data. You can get income data, ethnicity data, age data, all kinds of things on there. And that may be a great start for your congregation, that if you just want to know who's around you, what are the people who are within, you know, two miles, five miles, ten miles of your congregation, and just give you a sense of who's in your community and who's in your neighborhood— it's a really helpful tool. There are many, many other aspects of the ARDA. And full disclosure, this is a Lilly Endowment-funded project. The endowment funds us as well. But you know, I'm not saying it just because they're a sister organization, but they are a really, really helpful and useful tool that has tons and tons of information that you can find on the website.
2: I mean, yeah, there is so much information that you can find on the ARDA website and so many different layers of demographic info that you can glean. So if you just want to get lost in data, ARDA is a perfect resource for you. So please check that out. I think one resource that I want to bring up is called Racial Diversity in a Changing Harlem Congregation. And this is a PBS video from July of 2015, in which they are telling the story of First Corinthian Baptist Church in Harlem. It's a historically black congregation, a black Baptist congregation rooted in Harlem. And over the last decade or so, they have seen a steady growth of white congregants. And so this video is talking through some of the history of the congregation and it's sitting down with the pastor there and with different congregants that have recently joined and just kind of trying to investigate what is behind this transformation, this demographic transformation, how it's affecting folks and how pastoral leadership is approaching it. And so I think it's just a good case study in what a multicultural congregation might look like. And if nothing else, a fascinating look into what motivates people to join communities so different from theirs and how leadership can hold that transformation and transition as it's taking place.
1: Thanks, Ben. That sounds like a really cool specific case study. Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Did you have any other resources that you think are applicable for this discussion?
1: Yeah, actually, I want to bring an organization called the Kaleidoscope Institute that is a really interesting organization that says that it's for diverse and sustainable communities. There really are a lot of resources on their website. So it's K-S-C-O-P-E-institute.org. I don't know why I'm spelling that because it's going to be in the show notes. <laughs> but if you just look up or Google the Kaleidoscope Institute, they have a lot of different tools and ways of thinking about and working on becoming A more multi-ethnic or more diverse congregation. And that resource is not specifically just about multi-ethnicity, but just about diversity in congregations and just being places of welcome and being places of grace.
2: So this is a resource I found while I was doing other research earlier this week, and it's an article by Dr. Roxy Manning. And the article is called, How Can Nonviolent Communication Be Helpful in These Transformative Times? And she is using principles of nonviolent communication and talking about the ways they can be applied to this issue of racism. And she articulates the importance of empathy and gives an example of being in church one day after George Floyd was murdered and having an experience that didn't feel empathetic to the grief that she was holding as a person of color. And so she walks through what it looks like to actually use nonviolent communication and the empathy that is rooted in to have conversations, but also to take actions that help address racism or at the very least help you respond with grace to those feeling the oppressive weight of societal racism as it continues affecting people of color in this country. So it's not going to be universal. Well, no, I think it's universally applicable because we can all learn from it. I know not every multicultural congregation is going to deal with the black, white, racist dynamic in the same way. Having said that, I think it's still helpful because it can be a reflection on ways to use nonviolent communication, either when tensions arise or just in the daily practice of communicating with folks that are different from you.
1: I also want to bring up a podcast that I recently found interesting, and of course, this is still going to be your primary podcast that you're going to listen to. Of course. Of course. But of course. So, But I'm going to recommend another one. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's from the New York Times and Serial. It's a podcast called Nice White Parents, mm. and basically, it's kind of the history of segregated schools in New York from the 1960s up until the present, and it's not a huge investment. It's only five episodes, but it kind of tells an overarching story. And it was just a really fascinating look into how dominant white culture can be in certain scenarios and situations and can potentially stand in the way of preventing positive change, especially as you move towards multi-ethnic or multicultural kinds of things. So it's a really good podcast. Again, that's called Nice White Parents. All of these resources we'll have in the show notes. And we've also got quite a few resources on the CRG. Remember, we have the CRG out there, dot org. It's a database of some of the best resources that we've found over the years. And you can search by different keywords or search terms. And we've got quite a bit of good things on there around multicultural and multi-ethnic congregations.
2: Absolutely. And so, you know, with that being said, we want to take a moment and thank our sound editor and engineer, Jaden Lee. He makes us sound good, cleans up the audio, and really allows this podcast to shine the way that it shines. And so we really appreciate the great work that you do and the friendship that you offer, Jaden.
1: We also want to thank our funder, the Lilly Endowment. Their generosity allows us to do our work with congregations in Indiana and the podcast.
2: And as always, we just want to encourage you to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the Center for Congregations. That's where you can find information on new education events, resources, and stories about the good things that Indiana congregations are doing.
1: Also, make sure to follow us on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. Yes, iTunes changed it from subscribe to follow. Not sure why you did that, iTunes. They did. We do appreciate you letting us post on your service, but why'd you change it?
2: (laughs) (laughs) And while you're on there please leave us a five-star review. That's the fastest way for new listeners to find this content.
1: And you can always reach out to us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. We would love to hear from you. Just any reactions that you have, any resources that you want to hear from, any pushback that you have on any of the things that we say.
2: Yes, please email us. We would really appreciate that. So this has been episode four of season three. We're so glad y'all continue to join us on this journey. We're learning and we hope that you are being enriched by these conversations as well. We can't wait to meet you here for episode five. I am
1: Ben Tapper. And I have been and continue to be Matt Burke. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) See y'all.